We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Away we go, episode 125 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, August 18th, 2021, the day after not one, but two Washington football team quarterbacks spoke at length at Washington football team training camp. It's not often that a quarterback speaks. We had two quarterbacks speaking on Tuesday, two for Tuesday. You know, that's a popular thing in music radio, especially like classic rock radio. Hey, two for Tuesday, everybody. Uh, Well, we had a WFT version of two for Tuesday, Ryan Fitzpatrick and Kyle Allen. They talked a lot. They said a lot. We'll go through everything that mattered starting next segment. But hello and welcome to another installment of the Al Galdi podcast. It is great to have you with us. However, you are with us. Some of you listen first thing in the morning. Some of you listen later in the day. Some of you listen in the car. Some of you listen in the kitchen. Some of you listen at the gym. Some of you listen on Apple Podcasts. Some of you listen on Google Podcasts. Some of you listen on Spotify. Whenever, wherever, and however you listen, I say thank you to you. You know, you are part of a movement. You are part of something that was never supposed to happen. This is a revolution, people. This podcast on a daily basis is battling the behemoths of the podcasting 
and radio industries. And yet here we are, more than holding our own, consistently top 50 in the country on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. You know, I was thinking about it. The likes of, you know, Barstool and ESPN and iHeart and The Athletic and the Action Network, they're all saying when they look at the rankings, who is this Al Galdi guy? Who is this Galdi guy? What is he doing in our territory? And to that I say, who says it's your territory? And so here we are. You and me, we ride together on this pod Monday through Friday. Although this week, there's a scheduling change, remember? No show for Friday, show for Saturday because the Washington football team plays on Friday night. Uh, But each episode out by 5 a.m. on whatever day the episode comes out. And so here we are on this Wednesday with plenty to get into. So like I said, Ryan Fitzpatrick and Kyle Allen spoke on Tuesday. Each spoke via post-practice press conference. Fitzpatrick was awesome, said a lot of good and interesting stuff, including about how he comes to know his receivers in terms of the deep game, in terms of chucking bombs. Uh, Allen had some really good stuff to say about his injury situation, about Curtis Samuel, and about Antonio Gibson. Wait till you hear what Kyle Allen said about Antonio Gibson. And of course, we will discuss plenty of things off all of these things. I will talk Nationals as they actually had a good day for a change. A, they won a game, 12-6 victory over the Toronto Blue Jays at Nationals Park on Tuesday night to snap a seven-game losing streak. B, the Nats got news on Joe Ross that maybe, just maybe, means that he won't be undergoing a second Tommy John surgery. We'll see. The Orioles, on the other hand, uh, they got pummeled again, lost their 13th consecutive game, 10-0 the final at the American League-leading Tampa Bay Rays on Tuesday night. The Orioles, during this 13-game losing streak, have been outscored by 87 runs. I will provide a proper therapy session for O's fans late in the show. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Robin on something that we talked about on Tuesday's show, episode 124, the bleeping out of three apparent name candidates, maybe the final three name candidates for the Washington football team in its latest episode of the Making the Brand YouTube series. Now, I said in an initial version of Tuesday's show that my three guesses on the names were Red Wolves, Red Hogs, and Warriors. Uh, Stupid me, I forgot that Jason Wright had previously said that Warriors is out. Uh, A few of you pointed that out. My bad on that. Jason Wright in his President's Brief column on WashingtonFootball.com on July 12th said that Warriors will not be the team's permanent name. Anyway, writes Robin, I actually think without going into full Illuminati conspiracy mode, you can read quite a lot from it, with it being the video. One, WFT is not going to stay. The fan saying, I like that we didn't just rush into some generic name. This is going to be the name going forward, hopefully forever, is right on point. And the fact they put it in there shows they are aware they cannot afford to have this amazing and thorough two-year process come up with nothing better than the temporary name found in two weeks. Two, Red Wolves is on the short list, and they know it's the clear-cut fan favorite. It's the only name getting praised by several people in the video. They showed everybody howling, which is both a funny way to bring people together and a solid way to get fans fired up and into the game, and showed several wolves 
base logos. I think they know with time more and more people are getting ready to accept the new name, no matter what it'll be, and they may be wanting to drop some subtle hints so people start getting used to it and or generate some fan feedback. Uh, Robin, your points make sense. Uh, I do think that Red Wolves was among the three names, assuming that those were in fact three names. You know, we can't be certain about anything here. And I do think that Red Wolves would be a good name on a lot of levels. It's a cool sounding name. You can abbreviate the name into a one syllable name, Wolves. That is a goldy requirement for the Washington football team's permanent name, the ability to abbreviate the name into a one syllable name. Uh, the Red Wolf is an endangered species that used to be found in the southeastern portion of the United States, even the mid Atlantic region of the United States. So there is at least somewhat of a geographical tie to this area. Uh, There is a military tie-in as well. Red Wolves was a helicopter squadron for the United States Navy Reserve. Red Wolf also is a superhero identity used by several fictional characters appearing in American comic books published by Marvel Comics. But there's also this, the Native American tie-in of going with Red Wolves. Red Wolf is a famous Native American who was born in Kansas in the 1800s, died in 1937. Also, the spirit of the Red Wolf is a thing in Native American culture. So there is a Native American tie-in that you just know would offend somebody somewhere, even though going with Red Wolves as the name would almost certainly have nothing to do with the Native American tie-in. Email from Robert Anderson on the name Commanders as the permanent name for the team currently known as the Washington football team. Yeah, so the name Commanders came up at one point in the video in a conversation with a fan. I could actually see the team going with Commanders. I don't hate Commanders, but it is three syllables, and you can't realistically shorten it to a one-syllable nickname. Again, that is a goldy requirement for the new name. Commanders. Three syllables. Sorry, too onerous, too burdensome to have to constantly say, just like Washington, Washington. You need the one syllable nickname. You don't have that with commanders. Or do ya? Writes Robert in his email in reference to your topic of why the commanders wouldn't be a good name for the team because it can't be shortened to a nickname. We could just call them the comms. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about the comms. Uh, I'm thinking that comms would not catch on. A tweet from Andy on a nickname for Commander, says Andy, let's go Durs. Yeah, I'm thinking that won't work either. And then we have this email from Philip about Ron Rivera, writes Philip. Old Ron has a pattern of speech that demands to be mocked. He really does. I mean, here's a guy who talks to the media all the time and does a great job. He really does. He's friendly, professional, and doesn't divulge too much. It's a good approach. It really is. We certainly don't have to be mean about it, but we can tease. We really can. I just wanted to point this out because while it may not be important, it is interesting. It really is. Well, thank you for the email, Philip. I have to be honest with you. Over all of the Ron Rivera press conference sound that we have discussed on the Al Galdi podcast. I had never noticed that particular habit from Ron before. I really hadn't. So now I'm going to be listening for that. I really will. We all have our crutches when it comes to our speech. We really do. I'm sure I have words, phrases, and techniques that I overuse. I really am. 
<laughs> well, of course, there's no phrase that Ron loves more than position flex. In fact, Ron at his post-training camp practice press conference on Monday poked fun at himself for always saying position flex. This was Ron on Monday talking about James Smith-Williams. James is a guy that gives us a little bit of, uh, and I know I say it, but a little bit of possession flex. Yeah, I really like that from Ron. Well, as Ron has position flex, the number one real estate agent in the DMV, John Grandlin of Real Broker, has commission flex, flexible commission rates. The days of 6% take it or leave it are over. Every house is different. Every circumstance is different. So why shouldn't there be flexibility with commission rates for real estate agents? If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandlin, a.k.a. John G. John G. will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. For free, some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house and give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin. This is a phone call that could make you and or save you tens of thousands of dollars. Call John G at 703 537-6747. And when you talk to John, make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and make sure that you ask John about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, Commission Flex. That phone number again, 703-537-6747. Also, you can visit johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the originator of Commission Flex. James is a guy that gives us a little bit of, uh, and I know I say it, but a little bit of Possession Flex. Yes, Ron, just like Position Flex. All right, so Tuesday was a cutdown day in the NFL. Each team had until 4 p.m. Eastern to trim its roster from 90 to 85 players. The Washington football team released two players, including corner Greg Stroman. Uh, Stroman had been on the active, physically unable to perform list since the first day of training camp, July 27th. Injuries had really been a problem for Stroman in recent years. Washington took Stroman in the seventh round of the 2018 NFL Draft out of Virginia Tech. He and his rookie season actually played quite a bit. Stroman in the 2018 regular season played on 37.37% of Washington's defensive snaps, but Stroman over the last two regular seasons played in a total of just five games. 2019 regular season, Washington placed Stroman on the reserve injured list off having waived him with an injury designation on September 10th, 2019. He suffered a core muscle injury in Washington's week one loss at the Philadelphia Eagles. And then 2020 regular season, Washington placed Stroman on the reserve injured list on October 16th due to a foot injury. This coming Tuesday, August 24th at 4 p.m. Eastern is the deadline by which each NFL team must cut down to 80 players. And then the following Tuesday, August 31st at 4 p.m. Eastern is the deadline by which each NFL team must cut down to 53 players. 
In terms of the post-practice press conferences at Washington training camp in Ashburn, uh, in the burn on Tuesday, there really wasn't much to Ron Rivera's post-practice press conference, but we did get post-practice press conferences for two of Washington's quarterbacks, Ryan Fitzpatrick and Kyle Allen. And so we'll focus on those guys and what they had to say over the next few segments. So first of all, I cannot get enough of Ryan Fitzpatrick. And I feel like this reaction to Fitzpatrick was probably very predictable, but it is in fact the reality, at least for me. Uh, His story is absurd, right? 2005 seventh round pick from Harvard, who is entering his 17th NFL season and will be playing for his ninth NFL team. He is a chucker. He is an aggressive downfield thrower of the football. He is Yolo Fitz. And his look to me is hysterical. He, of course, has the massive beard, but he also has this ridiculous white guy afro going on. He looks like an in-shape version of Zach Galifianakis. And an image that I can't shake is from two Fridays ago. So if you remember the Friday night football training camp practice at FedEx Field on August 6th, the Washington football team that evening tweeted out a video of Fitzpatrick, and it just so happens Chase Young walking toward the stadium from the player's parking lot. And Fitzpatrick, you know, he walks with this great posture, shoulders back, chest out, So he's got the beard, he's got the white guy afro, and then he's walking with his chest puffed out like he's all jacked up while walking next to one of the single best athletes in the NFL and Chase Young. I don't know. The whole scene just made me laugh, but that's Ryan Fitzpatrick. He is incredibly likable. Now, if he throws four picks in a week one loss to the Chargers at FedEx Field, uh, then he's not so likable. But for now, uh, we can like the guy. And he knows football. And he knows the quarterback position. So you get a lot out of listening to his answers. Ryan Fitzpatrick at his post-practice press conference on Tuesday on his comfort level with Washington's offense as Washington football team training camp now is more than three weeks old. Uh, I feel I feel really good with where we're at right now. Obviously, we just need to continue in the trend that we've been going with, but um, it, it's, been, it's been fun to get to know the guys. It, it's been fun to get to dive into this offense a little bit and get some reps and figure out Scott's mind a little bit and why we're doing what we're doing. And uh, it's definitely been a process for me and will continue to be a process. But getting out there in the preseason game, working on some of that communication with the guys up front, I think we got everything we wanted to out of last week. And hopefully that continues this week. One of the things about Fitzpatrick is that he has learned how to learn. Learning in and of itself is a skill. Uh, Washington, as mentioned, is Fitzpatrick's ninth NFL team. Learning a new offense is something that he has done a lot of. He's used to the process. What are some of the signs for Fitzpatrick of him becoming more comfortable in an offense? Uh, Some of it is those trust throws and knowing when guys are going to break in or out and at at what point, uh, you know, being on the same page with a guy on a, a signal or kind of being able to trust that the line is doing, you know, what I think they're doing in terms of, you know, when we talk about protections and different things and knowing that they'll be there to pick the guys up and trust that they're picking them up. It's all that kind of stuff as we go through it that the more we do it in practice, the more comfortable you get in knowing that it's going to happen in a game. And a great example of a trust throw is the big completion that Fitzpatrick had to Logan Thomas in Washington's preseason opening 22-13 loss 
at the New England Patriots last Thursday night. Washington's second offensive drive resulted in Dustin Hopkins' first quarter missed 40-yard field goal attempt. Third snap of the drive, Fitzpatrick, a third and 10, 24-yard shotgun completion to Thomas on a beautiful back shoulder play. Fitzpatrick on Tuesday on Logan. Yeah, I mean, Logan Logan is a he's an interesting guy. He's a great story in what he's done and actually being a quarterback in the league for a little bit. But uh, his body type, first of all, big physical guy, can make every catch. He's got that huge catching radius. That's something as a quarterback you love. But it's uh, the subtleness in and out of the breaks. It's uh, his ability to think like a quarterback out there whether it's man or zone and understanding where he needs to be and the timing at which he needs to be there. All that stuff has been great. And then when you get to the red zone, it's even heightened even more. And uh, so far it's been good working with him. We've always have conversations during and after practice about football. He loves football. Um, And also he's got five kids. I've got a few more than he does, but some of the parenting stuff as well. Yeah, I may be calling Ryan Fitzpatrick with the dual birthday party in the Galdi household on Saturday. The other big throw that Fitzpatrick had at the Pats was the big completion to Terry McLaurin. So Washington's first offensive drive, uh, what was the first offensive drive of the game, the drive did result in a first quarter punt, but the second snap of the drive, Fitzpatrick, a second and seven, 22-yard shotgun play action completion to Terry McLaurin. Fitzpatrick throwing a great ball, that McLaurin caught in stride, allowing for McLaurin to generate around 10 yards after the catch. Fitzpatrick on Tuesday was asked about how he threw that ball to where McLaurin caught it in stride, how Fitzmagic threw the ball to just the right spot well before McLaurin was there. Some of that is hard to, some of that is hard to like put into words, I guess, because it's so second nature at this point, like making some of those throws and if you ask me how far I lead somebody when they're running this way or running this way full speed I don't even know you just you have done it for so long that like it's just second nature but uh there is you know certain coverages are going to dictate where we're going with the ball and on that play in particular he's also got to trust that I'm throwing him in there and I'm not throwing him into traffic he's going to be able to run through that ball and you know hopefully get out the back end so um, again, time and reps, but a lot of it just we practice out here so much and throw so many of those balls that it just becomes second nature with me and with him and putting it in the right spot and knowing where he's going to be. Yeah, throwing guys open. That's what the great quarterbacks do. What about the preseason? Only two games are left in Washington's 2021 preseason. Fitzpatrick at the Pats played for less than a quarter for just two offensive drives. He went five of eight for 58 yards, no touchdowns had no interceptions, and he took no sacks. How much does Fitzpatrick want to play over Washington's final two preseason games? Uh, I, I mean, I, I always like playing a little bit in the preseason. You know, I don't, I don't need to go out there and play the whole game, but it's nice to put the uniform on, to go through the warm-up, uh, and to get a couple series where you can communicate, come off the sideline, look at the pictures, um, you know, the communication with Scott, the communication with Coach Zampezi, that kind of stuff, and even talking to guys on the sideline. Um, it's nice when I've, I'm in a setting now where I haven't done it with those guys before just to get a couple practice runs in. So you can tell that Fitzpatrick doesn't exactly love the preseason. I don't know that any veteran loves the preseason, but it is something that can benefit a veteran, especially one 
on a new team. Well, a great medical team in our area is led by a big supporter of the Al Galdi podcast, Dr. George Verghese. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. You might say that Dr. Verghese is the quarterback of the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's the Patrick Mahomes of the Institute. Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. And specific to that, Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that's a game changer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and a downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You do have options. SRT is an option. And Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area. And SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure that you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. But if you or someone you know is dealing with skin cancer, first of all, we hope that you or that someone you know is doing well. But second of all, call Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland and see what can be done for you. That phone number is 301-396-3401. Or you can visit MidAtlanticSkin.com. That's MidAtlanticSkin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. So if you have been following Ryan Fitzpatrick since he signed with the Washington football team, you know that he is very bullish on himself and on this team. Fitzpatrick in a conversation with Pablo S. Torre in an installment of the ESPN Daily podcast that dropped on July 19th said of his, Fitzpatrick's, situation with the Washington football team going into the 2021 season, quote, I think this is the best situation I've ever been in or the best situation that I've ever gone into as the guy, end quote. Fitzpatrick in a conversation with Julie Donaldson and D'Angelo Hall of the Washington Football Broadcast Network during Washington's Friday night football training camp practice at FedEx Field on August 6th said, quote, I am telling you without a doubt, physically, I feel good, but I am 100% better than I have ever been right now, end quote. And Fitzpatrick in an article by Robert Mays, NFL writer for The Athletic that came out last Thursday, very much talked up this Washington team. Why is Fitzpatrick so high on this team and this situation? More from Fitzmagic on Tuesday. I think it's a group that's we're ascending. I mean, everybody's heading in the right direction. I think there's some momentum coming off of last year. And then just, you know, speaking about the offense, the the offense is going to be dynamic. There's a lot of different guys where it's not just going to be focused on one guy trying to force feed him the ball. There's a lot of different guys that can make plays. So I think the co- combination of all that and obviously the defense and everything that's talked about with them, for us, you know, to have the privilege to go against them every day and try to get better, uh, that's been really helpful too. So it's a combination of all that, I think, that, uh, you know, leads me to think that I'm in a really good situation. 
Yeah, and you love hearing that, right? That this is going to be a dynamic offense. That's what Washington needs more than anything as compared to what the team was last season. Be more dynamic offensively, more explosive plays. And that comes, generally speaking, from the passing game. Yes, you can have explosive plays in the running game, but the passing game is your best source of explosive plays. And Washington's passing game overall last regular season uh, wasn't good, as we've talked about many times on this podcast. SharpFootballStats.com defines an explosive passing play as a passing play for at least 15 yards. Washington in the 2020 regular season per SharpFootballStats.com was number 31 in the NFL in explosive passing play rate at 6.15%. There are 32 teams in the NFL. Washington last regular season was 31st out of 32 NFL teams in explosive passing play rate for sharpfootballstats.com. 40 explosive passing plays out of 650 total passing plays. That is not good. That needs to be much, much better. And so what about generating more explosive passing plays? Look, this is what Ryan Fitzpatrick is known for as much as anything, throwing deep. I mean, one of his nicknames is Yolo Fitz. That tells you everything that you need to know. Ryan Fitzpatrick led the NFL in yards per pass attempt for the 2018 regular season. Ryan Fitzpatrick was top five in the NFL for the league's next-gen stats in average completed air yards in the 2018 and 2019 regular seasons. Fitzpatrick on Tuesday on developing the deep game with his receivers. Yeah, I mean, every every receiver is different, you know, and uh, yeah, it just, it depends. And some of it's the speed, some of it is, uh, you know, when they're getting open, if it's going to be an early go throw versus one maybe that's going to be down the field a little bit more. But um, I've got my, my three or four categories that kind of every receiver fits in one of those. And you just... For me, I'm able to quickly kind of assess and throw them in a box, and that helps me uh, get on the same page quicker, I guess. I, I can't tell you the four boxes. Yeah, no. Yeah, maybe maybe in my book in 20 years. I'll... So that to me was really interesting. The process by which Fitzpatrick figures out the deep game with his receivers. Quote, I've got my three or four categories that kind of every receiver fits in one of those. For me, I'm able to quickly kind of assess and throw them in a box, and that helps me get on the same page quicker, I guess. End quote. I've got my, my three or four categories that kind of every receiver fits in one of those, and you just, for me, I'm able to quickly kind of assess and throw them in a box, and that helps me... Uh, get on the same page quicker, I guess. So he has boxes. He has categories that he puts his receivers into. I had never heard of that before. This seems like such a Harvard thing to do, you know, Ivy League level compartmentalizing and processing, next level thinking in terms of quickly establishing a deep game rapport with new receivers. So now we have to find out what are the categories and who goes in which categories. But, you know, you think about this processing. I mean, is that not like a certain someone who used to be Washington's starting quarterback and used to be, by his own admission, process-oriented? I'm a little bit more process-oriented. 
Yeah, I mean, does that not sound like old Kirky? You know, it's a little dorky, isn't it? Like, I have my three or four categories that kind of every receiver fits into one of those, and I must uh, quickly assess which receiver goes in which category and which receiver goes in which box. Like, that's, that's, that's such a nerdy quarterback thing to do, but I think it's smart. And if it works for Ryan Fitzpatrick, then by all means, do it. If it works, do it, my homie. And I hope it works, and I hope Ryan Fitzpatrick kills it for the Washington football team this coming season. As far as the Ryan Fitzpatrick story, one of the more interesting things about that story is that Fitzpatrick regards his time with the Houston Texans as a turning point in his career. Fitzpatrick only played for the Texans for one season, 2014. He, in that season, over 12 regular season games, all of which were starts, had 17 touchdown passes, versus eight interceptions, and averaged 7.96 yards per pass attempt. That's a very good yards per pass attempt. The Texans' head coach at the time was Bill O'Brien, whose reputation these days, not so good. But Ryan Fitzpatrick thinks very highly of Bill O'Brien, who, by the way, was Maryland's running backs coach years ago under head coach Ralph Regan. Bill O'Brien was Maryland's running backs coach in 2003 and 2004. Anyway, what was it about Fitzpatrick's time with the Texans that worked so well for him and impacted him so much? More from Fitzpatrick on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was looking at the, it was looking at the game in a different way than I had ever looked at it. Uh, It was understanding um, how to manipulate the defenses to make the offense work. Um, It was a different way to attack defenses and it just it was a complete 180 with what I had done in the past and just having that new perspective on the way that he did it and the way that he taught it uh, really allowed me to kind of bring that along in my career and and help me year after year and so that's the thing with Fitzpatrick the turning point in his career didn't occur (laughs) until 2014 his 10th NFL season his age 32 season. That is rather deep into a career to experience a turning point. But that says something about Ryan Fitzpatrick's willingness to learn, that he was open to a turning point in his 10th NFL season. And Fitzpatrick on Tuesday talked about needing to still have that willingness as he now is with Washington. Yeah, I mean, even even here, uh, you know, going into year 17 and having having an offense that I'm not 100% familiar or comfortable with and having to trust sometimes some of the things that they're saying. Uh, you know, as an older guy, a lot of times it's, well, I, uh, that's not the way I've done it. I don't think that's going to work. And it did take uh, OTAs and some training camp reps to kind of see some things that I hadn't looked at it that way before, some of these throws and progressions and the way that we do it here. Uh, and it goes both ways. There's some stuff I'm really comfortable with that I've been successful with that we'll, you know, sprinkle into the offense as well. Um, but it's it's hard. And the older you get, the harder it is to take a step back and say, no, 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 I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, and you get into that game a little bit. So you take the ego out of it, and you really it takes reps and time to understand it. And that's that's been good for me with the offseason. And along those lines, this was Fitzpatrick on Tuesday on working with Washington offensive coordinator Scott Turner. It's been good, and it it takes 
a lot of conversations. I mean, again, it's sometimes it's egos to the side and what's best for the team and just always making sure that we're all pulling in the same direction. But, uh, yeah, those are things that they, they take work because you've got a lot of guys that are, you know, very prideful and we're all in the spot that we're at because we've been successful in what we do. So, uh, it's been great. The com- the conversations and communication, whether it's on the practice field or up in the meeting rooms, has been really good. And I think that's probably the most important part of it is uh, open lines of communication, constantly talking about it, likes, dislikes, all that, and just putting everything out in the open. And that's that's usually the best way to communicate. So keep in mind, Fitzpatrick and Turner are essentially the same age. Ryan Fitzpatrick will turn 39 on November 24th. Scott Turner just turned 39 on August 7th. And whereas this coming season will only be Scott Turner's second full season as an NFL offensive coordinator, this coming season will be Fitzpatrick's 17th NFL season as a quarterback. So it is important that Fitzpatrick not big brother Turner too much, even though Fitzpatrick is younger than Turner. But it's also important that Turner listens to Fitzpatrick because the guy knows what he's talking about. We'll hear from another Washington quarterback, Kyle Allen, after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All right, so Kyle Allen on Tuesday spoke via post-practice press conference at Washington football team training camp in Ashburn. We had not heard from Kyle Allen since he aggravated his surgically repaired left ankle on July 31st at Washington's final 2021 training camp practice in Richmond. He did not fully practice again until this past Sunday, August 15th. Now, when we say surgically repaired left ankle, Remember the specifics. Allen, in the 23-20 loss to the Giants at FedEx Field in Week 9 of last season, suffered a dislocated left ankle and reported small fracture. He underwent surgery last November 13th. Allen on Tuesday on being back and on what happened in Richmond. 
being back out here is awesome. Feels great. Uh, I just got rolled up on in Richmond. Just a little sprain, but everything's good now. Feels great. Feels better than it did before. So feels great to be back out here. Yeah, you could hear the relief in Kyle's voice. What will tell Kyle that he's 100% healthy? Just getting hit, honestly. Just getting hit hard. I just want to get hit again. I feel like that's what preseason is about for quarterbacks in general. Is You just want to be able to go through the motions. You want to be able to execute and then take a couple hits and feel good about it. Well, if Kyle wants to get hit, a chance to get hit would be in preseason game number two for Washington, the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field on Friday night at 8. Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Monday mentioned the possibility of Kyle playing against the Bengals. Kyle on Tuesday. Yeah, I'm going to play Friday. I'll be good. So there you go. Kyle Allen is in for Friday night against the Bengals. It'll be interesting to see how the playing time for Washington quarterbacks is distributed on Friday night. Four quarterbacks could play, right? Ryan Fitzpatrick, Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen, and Steven Montez, although it's obviously possible that one or more do not play. Uh, Maybe Ron Rivera has decided that Ryan Fitzpatrick is done for the preseason, or at least is done until preseason game number three. Speaking of Fitzpatrick, what has him being with Washington been like for Kyle? I think Ryan, just like Alex was last year in any vet to be around, I think they just bring good perspective, different perspective, especially him because he's been in so many different offenses, been around so many different people. He knows what he likes. He knows what we can do better for our personnel. And then for him, I think it just took a little a little time to really get used to it. I don't think he's been in this system ever. It's been a long time. But I think with him, over the summer, he was really trying to feel out like what he could do in this offense. He was really trying to push it. And now I think you see it in these last couple couple weeks, especially when I was out watching him. He's crisp. Like He's doing really well. He's really getting in his groove. And I think he's finding where his space can go on each play. So Kyle Allen is the only current Washington quarterback who started a regular season game for Washington last season. The receiving core now, very different from last season's receiving core, right? When you consider the likes of Curtis Samuel, Adam Humphreys, Deami Brown. What stands out to Kyle about the new look receiving core? I mean, we got a lot of speed now. We got a lot of speed. I think, obviously, I was with Curtis in Carolina, so I have a lot of experience with Curtis. He's going to be great. You guys haven't seen him much out here, but he's going to be incredible. Um, Adam, bringing him in, he's been great. He's been great in short area stuff, but he's also fast down the field, too. People don't give him credit for that. And then, you know, I know Fitz talks about him a lot, but Tiami's been awesome down the field stuff, and he's been picking everything up really quickly. And obviously, Terry, and there's a ton of other guys in the room. I think our receiver room's really deep this year. I think everyone can see that. But, you know, it's been, a, it's been a bright spot for us, for sure. And so with the new weapons at receiver, is Kyle Allen, who knows Scott Turner well, given that both were with the Carolina Panthers, seeing Scott utilize more, or at least different parts of, his playbook in training camp as compared to what Scott used last regular season? Yeah, I think, you know, Scott does a good job of just accentuating what we're good at and what players we got and just trying to get the ball to them in the best way possible. And so I think we've seen a lot of different stuff this year. I think he did a deep dive in the offseason of what we needed to get better at and who we drafted and who we traded for and what we can do. And so it's a lot different than last year, for sure. Going back to Curtis Samuel, Kyle Allen knows Curtis well, uh, was with him on the Panthers for two seasons, 2018 
and 2019. The Panthers signed Kyle as an undrafted free agent out of Houston in April 2018. Kyle, during the 2018 regular season, had multiple stints on the Panthers practice squad before late season promotion to the active roster. He played in two games that season, and then Kyle in the 2019 regular season played in 13 games with 12 starts for the Panthers. Kyle on Tuesday on what Curtis Samuel brings to Washington beyond his speed. I mean, just looking over his film, if you've watched this film in the past, I think just with the ball in his hands, it's, it's kind of like Terry with the ball in his hands. You know, once you get the ball to him, it's 50, 60, 70% chance you're not getting him down right away. I think Curtis is great. We'll do a lot of different stuff with him, you know, and, and I think he's just creates separation on his routes better than a lot of people I've been with. I think people are scared of his speed deep, and he's really good in and out of his cuts. And so um, I think we're excited to get him back out here, happy he's healthy and ready for the season. Yeah, Washington now has four speed demons in terms of significant receivers and running backs. Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, Deami Brown, and Antonio Gibson. The guy who ran the fastest 40 out of that group is Curtis Samuel. Samuel at the 2017 NFL Scouting Combine ran a 4-3-1-40. If I could somehow speak an emoji to you while doing this podcast, I would speak three fire emojis to you right now. Curtis Samuel, 4-3-1-40. Fire! He is a burner. Cannot wait to see him in a meaningful game for the Washington football team. And then the final topic for Kyle Allen at his post-practice press conference on Tuesday was Antonio Gibson. And take a listen to the name that Kyle immediately brings up in talking about Gibson. Yeah, I mean, you saw... Christian McCaffrey in this offense a couple years ago. Obviously one of the best players in the league, but I think that's where we're trying to push Antonio to go, and he's improved a ton, I think. Just think about it last year. He was a receiver coming in as a running back, right? And this year he's had a year under his belt where he played very well, like 10-plus touchdowns, and he's gaining a lot more confidence. He's playing a lot faster. He's understanding it. He's making decisions quicker. And I think the more reps he gets, just like last year, the more reps he gets, the better he gets. So, I mean, he's just been continuously getting better. Wow. So Kyle did not hesitate at all to invoke the name Christian McCaffrey in talking up Antonio Gibson. Not the first time someone has brought up Christian McCaffrey in relation to Antonio Gibson. Heck, Ron Rivera on the night on which Washington took Gibson in the third round of the 2020 NFL draft out of Memphis did not shy away from comparing him to McCaffrey when asked. But Kyle Allen on Tuesday went the Christian McCaffrey route in talking Antonio Gibson. Obviously, Kyle played with McCaffrey. In fact, McCaffrey's 1,000-yard rushing, 1,000-yard receiving season was that 2019 regular season in which Kyle Allen played a bunch for the Panthers. Does Kyle think that Gibson could be as productive as McCaffrey? I mean, I think we try and use him that way, you know. We try and get him the ball in the pass game. We try and run the ball with him a ton, and we'll motion him out. We'll use him in different spaces, him and JD, too, both of them. I don't think – I'm not trying to compare him to him, but it's the, the way we're trying to go with it. Well, I love hearing that. I want Antonio Gibson to be great this upcoming season. I think he has a real chance to be great. I love that pick from the moment that I found out that the Washington football team had made the pick. And I think there is very much another level that Antonio Gibson can get to. And I say that off the guy having had a very nice 2020 rookie season. Like It's not like Antonio Gibson did nothing last season, but expectations are very high for him. 
going into this coming season. I mean, I've said this, Antonio Gibson in so many ways is an analytics darling and a fantasy football darling already. And uh, the hype only gets larger with what Kyle Allen had to say about Antonio Gibson on Tuesday. Now, in order for Antonio Gibson to be as uber productive as Christian McCaffrey has been, I mean, remember, McCaffrey in the 2019 regular season had a thousand yard, thousand yard season, a thousand plus rushing yards and a thousand plus receiving yards. So in order for Gibson to be along those lines, okay, and that's a big ask, right? But let's aim high. uh, Two things need to change. One, Gibson has to become more of a factor in the passing game. Gibson at Memphis was a combo running back receiver. He, in his final season at Memphis, 2019, averaged 19.3 yards per reception. But Gibson, in the 2020 regular season, had just 36 receptions for 247 yards on 44 targets. For comparison's sake, J.D. McKissick, in the 2020 regular season, had 80 receptions for 589 yards and two touchdowns on 110 targets. Gibson, last regular season, 44 targets. McKissick, last regular season, 110 targets. The second thing that needs to change in order for Gibson to become McCaffrey-like is that Gibson needs to become much more of a factor on third downs. Gibson, in the 2020 regular season, incredibly, had just 11 third down touches, and they were 11 largely productive third down touches. He had eight third down carries, for 55 yards and two touchdowns. Eight carries for 55 yards on third downs. That's 6.88 yards per carry. And he had three third down receptions for 47 yards on three targets. And it's not like Washington was good on third downs last regular season. So you can't say, well, Gibson didn't get many third down touches, but Washington was excellent on third downs last season. Uh, No, that was not the case. Washington last regular season, 23rd out of 32 NFL teams and third down efficiency, 39.11%. Now, I think pretty clearly Antonio Gibson's pass pro is a reason that he wasn't on the field more on third downs last season. Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Tuesday actually got asked about how Gibson is doing in pass pro. He's doing well. He, again, it's one of those things about you want to see consistency. You, you see him get in there and he can stone a guy at the line and then other times he'll miss. And so it's really about him learning and developing that skill set too. All right. Well, look, pass pro is important. Uh, I will not tell you otherwise. But even if Gibson isn't excellent in pass pro, even if Gibson isn't, you know, Clinton Portis in pass pro, Clinton was great in pass pro. I do still want to see more of Gibson on third downs this coming season. 11 third down touches all of last regular season for a weapon like Antonio Gibson is inexcusable, especially given his production on those 11 third down touches. Eight third down carries for 55 yards and two touchdowns. Three third down receptions for 47 yards on three targets. All right. Well, the Nationals' seven-game losing streak is over. The Nats on Tuesday night won a game for the first time since two Saturday nights ago. Yeah, that's how long it had been since the Nats last won a game. The Nats' last win had been a 3-2 win at the Atlanta Braves on Saturday night, August 7th. It wasn't until Tuesday night, August 17th, that the Nats won again. But when they did a 12-6 win over the Toronto Blue Jays at Nationals Park in Game 1 of a two-game series. And so, for the first time 
in a long time on the Al Galdi podcast, we can have Davey Martinez do the honors. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, sir, Davey. The boys, they finally won a game again. Seven-game losing streak over. And that's now 17 games below 500 at 51 and 68 of this win over the Blue Jays in what was a YouTube game. Yes, you could only watch the game on YouTube. No Masson coverage. Scott Braun and Dan Plesak were on the call, although our friend Dan Colco was involved in the coverage as well. Did you enjoy the YouTube broadcast as an ads fan? I'm guessing probably not. You can always email me the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email on Tuesday night from Philip C., the PhD, writes, Philip, how horrible is the MLB YouTube broadcast? They perform a way too long dugout interview with Jose Barrios. Meanwhile, my large screen TV is wasted while they play the game in a much smaller box on the left with Barrios shown on the right. The whole broadcast does not flow and is disjointed with annoying views, flashbacks, extraneous information, and more. What a terrible viewing experience. Sorry, had to vent. I'm no fan of Masson, but the MLB broadcast makes Masson look like the Yes Network. I'll take Bob and FP, please. Yeah, so when you're used to watching your team in a certain way, and that way gets disrupted, there are problems. Uh, We are creatures of habit as sports fans. And the problem always with national announcers is, unless those announcers are truly elite, you as a fan of your team don't get that much from the broadcast. Because truth be told, the national announcers don't know as much as you know about your team. That's just the way that it is. I mean, I actually like Plesak. I think he's pretty good. But he and Scott Braun don't know the Nats like uh, we know the Nats. Certainly like Bob Carpenter and FP Santangelo know the Nats. And as much as Masson as a network isn't good, it's a devil that you do know. And so you can deal with it. You see, I bet you guys actually missed that generic Masson theme song that we've been hearing forever. Yeah, I bet that song never sounded so good. Anyway, the last time that the Nats had won a game, Riley Adams was the hero. Adams in that aforementioned 3-2 win at the Braves on August 7th went one for three with a huge two-run homer and an impressive walk. He smashed a two-out first pitch go-ahead two-run homer to the upper deck in left field of Braves closer Will Smith in the top of the ninth for a 3-2 Nats lead. The homer went a projected 412 feet for StatCast. The homer was Adams' first hit as a Nat and first major league homer and Adams in that game drew a leadoff 10-pitch walk in the top of the sixth. Well, looky, looky, who was the biggest hero for the Nats in their latest win on Tuesday night. The former Blue Jays prospect, Riley Adams, who scorched the Blue Jays. He was an Nats starting catcher and number eight batter. He went three for four with a solo homer a two-run double, and a single. Adams had a leadoff single to right center field in the Nats' six-run third, despite having been down to the count of 1.12. Adams had a leadoff full-count homer to left field in the bottom of the fourth for an 8-1 Nats lead. And Adams had a two-out, two-run double in the Nats' four-run eighth, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. That hit was huge. That two-out, two-run double 
in that Nationals four-run eighth inning. The Nats needed that four-run eighth inning because the Nats, off leading 8-3, gave up three runs in the top of the eighth and were only leading 8-6 going into the bottom of the eighth. And then the four-run Nationals eighth ended up happening. So Riley Adams is the guy who the Nats got back from the Blue Jays in the Brad Hand trade that went down on July 29th. He's one of multiple prospects gotten back in the big sell-off in late July, who the Nats already have summoned to the major league level. The Nats on August 3rd recalled Adams from AAA Rochester, and he has done a really nice job for the Nats in limited action. Only has 26 major league plate appearances, but he, over those 26 major league plate appearances, has an OPS of 993. Super small sample size, obviously, but so far, so good for Riley Adams, and this is what matters, right? How the potential building blocks are doing for the Nationals over the course of the rest of this season. I don't know that you call Yadiel Hernandez a potential building block. He's a Cuban rookie in his age 33 season, but Yadiel had a big game on Tuesday night, and Yadiel is under team control for years to come, so it's very possible Yadiel has a role, maybe a significant role, on the Nats next season. So Yadiel was the Nats starting left fielder and number five batter, two for three with a solo homer and a two-run single. Yadiel had a one-out solo homer to right field on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the second and had a one-out two-run single off uh, Blue Jays shortstop Bo Bichette in the left field in the Nats six-run third. The baseball ricocheting off old Bo, but the baseball was hit pretty hard. So that, to me, was a legit uh, one-out two-run single there by Yadiel. So a three-ribby night for Yadiel Hernandez. And how about his overall batting numbers on the year now? This has kind of snuck up on people. I know it's kind of snuck up on me. I know he was doing pretty well. I didn't realize he was doing this well. He has an on-base percentage on the season of 365. That's really good. Uh, he's batting 303 on the year. He's slugging 444 on the year. So good job by Yadiel Hernandez on Tuesday night. And the Nats had a bunch of other offensive heroes as well. I mean, the Nats scored 12 runs on Tuesday night. It had been a minute since the Nationals had had an offensive eruption like this one. In fact, this game on Tuesday night marked the first time that the Nats scored double-digit runs since an 18-1 win over the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park on July 19th, okay? And I know that teams don't score double-digit runs regularly, but it had been a very long time since the Nats' bats had come alive the way the bats ultimately did in this game on Tuesday night. Carter Keeboom had another nice game. He was in that starting third baseman at number six batter, one for two with a single to walk and an RBI sack fly, one out single in the bottom of the second, a one out RBI sack fly to deep left field in the Nats six run third and a one out six pitch walk in the Nats four run eighth. Victor Robles had a decent night. He was in that starting center fielder, number one batter, one out hit by pitch in the Nats six run third and a two out first pitch RBI single in the Nats four run eighth. All CDs Escobar had a big hit in the game. He was in that starting shortstop and number two batter. Uh, went one for five, but the one was a big one. A one-out first pitch, two-run double to the left center field gap in the Nats six-run third inning. And the Nats got three nice pinch hit plate appearances in the game. Lane Thomas, who the Nats got from the St. Louis Cardinals in the John Lester trade, he had a nice pinch one-out six-pitch walk in that Nats four-run eighth. Gerardo Parra, the baby shark, he had a pinch two-out five-pitch walk in the Nats four-run eighth, and Ryan Zimmerman barely missed a grand slam. He had a pinch one-out RBI sack fly with the bases loaded on a deep fly ball to left field in the Nats four-run eighth inning. Really the only Nats position player who didn't get in on the act in terms of those who started the game was Luis Garcia. 
Uh, Luis was an at starting second baseman and number seven batter. He went 0 for 3. And he also had a mixed game in the field. And this is the book on Luis Garcia. He can make the spectacular play, but he also can have a hard time with the routine play. And you saw that in effect on Tuesday night. So first, the great play. Luis Garcia made an excellent defensive play for the first out in the Blue Jays' one-run third. On a Teoscar Hernandez liner that deflected off Eric Fetty, Garcia came charging into the infield grass, barehanded the ball while sliding forward on his knees, and then fired the ball to first base. Hernandez initially was ruled safe, but the Nats challenged the play, and the initial call was overturned into an out. Really nice play by Luis Garcia. But Luis, in the Blue Jays' three-run eighth, committed a run-scoring fielding error in botching a one-out Reese McGuire grounder that was tailor-made for a 4-6-3 double play. So, you know, that's the bigger play in terms of the game. Uh, The Nats end up winning the game, but it's like, it's awesome that you make the spectacular play, but you got to make the routine play, especially in a big spot like that. And Garcia, unfortunately, did not. Well, I mentioned Eric Fetty. He was the Nats' starting pitcher on Tuesday night, and he struggled again on Tuesday night. Nats did win, but this was not a winning performance by Eric Fetty. Three runs in five innings. You know, he wasn't awful, but he wasn't good enough, and that's kind of how it always is, it feels like, with Eric Fetty. He gave up five hits, a homer, a double, and three singles. He issued three walks. He threw just 54 strikes versus 40 balls on 94 pitches. He had four strikeouts. Uh, Fetty tossed scoreless first and second innings, but allowed two base runners in each inning. Fetty in the top of the third allowed a run on a leadoff single by Bo Bichette, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12. A Bichette steal a second base, a six-pitch walk of Vladimir Guerrero, and a one-out RBI ground out by Corey Dickerson. Fetty allowed two runs in the top of the fifth on a two-out five-pitch walk of Vladimir Guerrero, followed by a two-out first-pitch two-run homer by Teoscar Hernandez to dead center. That was some shot. The homer going up projected 409 feet for Stadcast. And here's the bottom line with Eric Fetty, who for a while had been doing well this season. You may remember this. Fetty, over his first 10 starts of this season, had a 3.33 ERA. But this outing on Tuesday night for Fetty was his ninth start since being reinstated from the 10-day entered list, which he was on from June 27th, retroactive to June 24th, to July 6th with a left oblique strain. Fetty, over these nine starts, 31 earned runs in 41 innings. That's really bad. And for all of the talk of Eric Fetty potentially blossoming this season, and I was a part of that talk because it looked like he was potentially blossoming this season, take a listen now to Eric Fetty's ERA on the year. 514. Eric Fetty over 20 starts this season, over 96 and a third innings this season, not a tiny sample size, has an ERA of 514. Worse than the ERA that John Lester had for the Nationals over his 16 starts with the Nats. Lester's ERA over 16 starts with the Nats, 502. Fetty's ERA for the Nats this season, 514. It's just not good enough. And, you know, I'm all for giving guys ample room with which to grow. And certainly with the way the Nats are right now, Eric Fetty's got plenty of room to grow, okay? He's not going anywhere in terms of this Nationals rotation, but the opportunity for him to grab a rotation spot and squeeze it by the throat, make it his, not just for the rest of this season, because it's going to be his regardless, but for next season and for the season after that, and he's not doing it. 
You know, it's a weird deal. Eric Fetty, when there wasn't a spot for him in the rotation, or at least not a definite spot for him in the rotation, pitched really well. Now that there is a definite spot in the rotation for him, he's not pitching well. I I don't know if that's like a psychological thing or what, but he's got to be better than this. Otherwise, it's like, what are we doing here? You know, at some point, Eric Fetty has got to step forward. 2014 first round pick. He's got talent. Okay. This is not someone who has like nothing going for him. He's a lot going for him and it's just not clicking for him. And the other thing too is Eric Fetty looked like he was really becoming more of a strikeout pitcher earlier this season. And that seems to have gone bye-bye over these last few months. Uh, In terms of the Nats bullpen on Tuesday night, four Nats relievers were utilized by Davey Martinez. Really three of the four pitched well. Uh, The four guys were Andres Machado, Mason Thompson, Kyle Finnegan, and Gabe Klobositz. So Machado looked good. Two scoreless innings. He now has an ERA at 265 on the season. The guy who struggled was Mason Thompson. Uh, Mason Thompson is the guy who the Nats got back from the San Diego Padres in the Daniel Hudson trade. And Thompson was a mess in what ended up being a three-run Blue Jays eighth. He, in that top of the eighth, was charged with all three runs, although only two of the runs were earned. And he did not record an out in the inning. He faced three batters to begin what was ultimately that three-run Blue Jays eighth. Gave up a leadoff single to Oscar Hernandez. Issued a five-pitch walk of Corey Dickerson. Issued a four-pitch walk of Randall Gritchick. And that was it. Davey yanked Mason Thompson from the game. Thompson, in his outing, through, get this, three strikes versus 10 balls. That's atrocious. Uh, then Kyle Finnegan came into the game to try to clean up the mess. So poor Kyle, he comes into the game, uh, top of the eighth inning, bases loaded, nobody out, and the Nats leading 8-3. Uh, all three Blue Jays runs in that inning end up being scored with Finnegan pitching, but it's not as simple as that. I thought Kyle actually did a pretty good job uh, the only thing he gave up, truthfully, was a one-out RBI single to a pinch-hitting Alejandro Kirk. But otherwise, uh, Kyle Finnegan, I thought, did a nice job, all things considered. Got three outs. The Blue Jays, two other runs with him pitching in the inning, scored on an out and an error. And then I got a kick out of Gabe Klobositz, the man who I refer to as Klobo, tossing a scoreless top of the ninth inning. So first of all, Gabe Klobositz is a 6'7", 270-pound behemoth, Okay. Uh, Gabe Klobositz, for whatever reason, and maybe he's had this going on and I just haven't noticed, but then again, maybe not. Gabe Klobositz had his jersey buttoned down <laughs> to, to where you could see his chest hair, okay? He he was looking all kinds of creepy. He's got facial hair too. So like when you combine the three things, A, his size, again, 6'7", 270, B, him having the jersey buttoned down to where you could see his chest hair, and see the fact that he's got facial hair. The guy looked like an extra from the movie Boogie Nights, okay? I was expecting to see Dirk Diggler come into the game from the Nationals' bullpen, but uh, oh, Clobo, he did get the job done there in that top of the ninth inning. So a feel-good night for the Nationals when it came to the actual game. We have not had many of those. Again, the Nationals had lost seven consecutive games. We also had, I guess to some extent, a feel-good day on Tuesday. Now, it's all relative, but Davey Martinez in his pregame press conference on Tuesday said that Joe Ross does not need a second Tommy John surgery for now. He will not pitch the rest of this season, but for now, Joe Ross isn't getting a second Tommy John surgery, and that is a good thing. So we had the big news and really the terrible news on Sunday morning, the Nats placing Ross on the 10-day injured list with a partial tear of his right UCL. Davey and his pregame presser on that day said that Ross might need a second Tommy John surgery. Well, it turns out that the Dallas area orthopedist who performed Ross's first Tommy John surgery 
in July 2017 has confirmed an initial diagnosis of a sprained right UCL. A full tear would have guaranteed Tommy John surgery. This partial tear does leave some leeway. Now, if you've been a baseball fan for any substantial length of time, you're likely familiar with the following scenario. A pitcher is hurt. The pitcher is said to potentially need Tommy John surgery. The initial course of action is rest and rehab because he doesn't definitely have to undergo the Tommy John surgery. And then, you know, three months later, four months later, six months later, nine months later, the pitcher ends up undergoing the Tommy John surgery. So we are far from out of the woods yet when it comes to Joe Ross avoiding a second Tommy John surgery. I hope that's the case. Maybe that will prove to be the case, but you cannot say that we're there yet. For now, the thinking is, okay, rest, rehab, and hopefully come spring training 2022, Joe Ross is at a point to where the sprain right UCL is not an issue. I mean, if you think about the timeline too, so if Ross underwent Tommy John surgery now, he'd be out about a year, could potentially pitch in September of next season, but that would be it. If Ross comes back for spring training next year and just still isn't good and still ends up undergoing Tommy John then, so let's say, you know, February slash March 2022, in theory, he would be good to go for 2023. So if he's going to need the second Tommy John surgery, you're only talking about him not being available to you next September, okay? Talking about September 2022 uh, with him delaying potentially the inevitable here. And that's not that big of a deal, especially if the Nationals aren't good in 2022. Now, there's something else going on here too, and that is next season is Joe Ross's final season of team control. It is possible that the Nats non-tender Joe Ross this offseason and just allow him to become a free agent and Joe isn't even back with the team for next year. That is a possibility. I don't know how likely that is, but you do have to be thinking about that. That's a part of the shame of all this. This latest injury for Joe Ross could end up costing him a lot of money. Uh, We'll see how the Nationals play this contractually coming up this offseason. Game two against the Blue Jays at Nationals Park Wednesday afternoon at 4.05. Now, Wednesday is supposed to be a rainy day in the nation's capital, so we'll see if this game ends up happening on time uh, and or ends up happening, period. But scheduled to be the Nats starting pitcher is Josiah Gray. And the biggest reason to still be following the Nats right now is Josiah Gray. He and catcher Cabert Ruiz, the top two prospects acquired in the massive sell-off in late July. The Nats got them from the Los Angeles Dodgers as the headline prospects in a crop of four prospects for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner in that trade that was finalized on July 31st. This will be Gray's fourth start for the Nats. He, over his first three starts for the Nats, has been quite good. Five earned runs in 16 innings. That works out to a 281 ERA. Gray has totaled 24 major league innings overall. He has 31 strikeouts over those 24 major league innings. 11.6 strikeouts per nine innings. That's terrific. Now, he also has given up some homers. He's given up nine homers in 24 major league innings. That's not good. In fact, Josiah Gray has allowed as many homers as he has issued walks, nine. So he's got to work on the home run thing. But overall, I've liked a lot of what we've seen 
from Josiah Gray. I mean, his Nats debut, 7-5 loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park on August 2nd. One run in five innings, only had two strikeouts. His next outing, 3-2 win at the Atlanta Braves on August 7th. He was terrific in that game. Two runs, just one earned in five innings, 10 strikeouts. And then his most recent start, a 4-2 loss to the Braves at Nationals Park this past Friday night. Three runs in six innings. The three runs came on three solo homers. Okay, but he also had six strikeouts versus no walks. There is a lot to like with Josiah Gray, and hopefully we have more to like with Josiah with what he does on Wednesday against the Blue Jays. All right, so the lowest point in Orioles history was the 0-21 start to the 1988 season. That may be the lowest point for any major league team ever. 0-21, your season is over, and you still have 141 games to go. Think about that. However, where we're at right now with the Orioles may be the second lowest point. It's debatable, but it's at least a conversation. The O's on Tuesday night lost their 13th consecutive game, 10-0 at the American League leading Tampa Bay Rays. Another blowout loss for the O's, who now during this 13-game losing streak have been outscored 123-36. Let me repeat that. 123-36. You know, prior to Tuesday night's debacle, the O's, of course, had a 12-game losing streak. The O's during that 12-game losing streak had been outscored by 77 runs. That minus 77 run differential matched the worst run differential by any team in any 12-game span in the modern era, which is since 1900. Well, now, the O's have been outscored in a 13-game losing streak by 87 runs. I mean, 87 runs. The O's now an American League worst 38 and 80, with a Major League worst run differential of minus 218. Is this 0-21 in 1988? Maybe not. But this is close. I said, this is close. It means you're close. Yes, Brucey. This is close. And so if you are an O's fan, just keep saying my saying to yourself. Pain now, pleasure later. Pain now pleasure later. Remember, Baseball America on Monday ranked the Orioles as having the number two farm system in all of baseball. Pain now, pleasure later. Pain now, pleasure later. Just keep saying that over and over and over again, because at this point, I'm not sure you have much of a choice. This is brutal. And even some of the bright spots of earlier this season are unraveling like John Means. John Means struggled again on Tuesday night. Seven runs, four earned in four innings. Now, it was an odd outing for Means. He did have seven strikeouts versus no walks. That's terrific. But he gave up eight hits, two homers, two doubles, and four singles. And he was failed by his defense. Uh, Means began his outing with three scoreless innings, but he then gave up three runs, all unearned due to a fielding error by shortstop Jorge Mateo in the bottom of the fourth. 
and Means gave up four runs in the bottom of the fifth, which he began by giving up back-to-back singles and then a three-run homer to the ex-Oriole, Nelson Cruz, for a 6-0 raised lead. So yes, bad defense behind Means was an issue, but he did not pitch well, and he has not been pitching well for a while. John Means in his last outing, the 6-4 loss to the Detroit Tigers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards last Thursday. Six runs in four into third innings. He in that game gave up eight hits, three homers, a triple, a double, and three singles. And in that game, Means was good initially, three scoreless innings, but he then gave up five runs in the top of the fourth. This has become a thing with Means, just like this has become a thing with Matt Harvey. We talked about that on Tuesday's installment of the podcast. Guys who are good initially in their outings, but then fall apart. And that's what happened to John Means once again on Tuesday night. You know, Means was out for a while with a left shoulder strain. He was on the 10-day injured list from June 6th to July 20th. I don't know if he's still hurting, but he does not look close to the same guy who we saw earlier this season. John Means, over his first eight starts this season, had an ERA of 121 and a whip of 0.71. He was a legitimate early season American League Cy Young contender. He threw a no-hitter. Remember that? 6-0 win at the Seattle Mariners on May 5th. Cinco de Mayo. John Means threw a no-hitter, and that John Means has gone bye-bye. That John Means, the John Means who we saw on Cinco de Mayo, uh, it's been adios to that guy over these last few months. It's a shame, and I hope that we see that John Means again, but I don't know what to think at this point. This guy was having such a great season, and now it's like you can't even count on him the last five innings start in and start out. A positive for the O's on Tuesday was the return of Ryan Mountcastle. The O's on Tuesday reinstated Mountcastle from the 10-day injured list, which he had been on due to a concussion that was suffered in a 10-6 loss to the Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on August 6th. If you recall that game, Mountcastle, bottom of the first, went out RBI single, but he then, in getting caught trying to steal second base, took a hard tag on the side of his head and left the game due to concussion protocol. So Mountcastle on Tuesday night in this game at the Rays was the Orioles starting first baseman at number four batter, and he got on base a couple of times. He had a double and a walk. I mean, the Orioles offense did nothing in this game. 10-0 was the final, but Mountcastle now on the season does have an OPS of 789. He is a potential building block. He is one of the Orioles who you want to be paying attention to here. Again, hey now, pleasure later. Pain now, pleasure later. And boy, is there a lot of pain right now. Game three at the American League leading Rays, Wednesday night at 710. Spencer Watkins will start for the O's. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me. But just for now, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Remember, we have an altered schedule for this week. No show for Friday, but a show for Saturday due to the Washington football team having its second preseason game on Friday night and due, to a lesser extent, to the Nationals not playing on Thursday. So Thursday's show, episode 126, will be a special show to get you through not one, but two days. And then a Saturday specialty for you of Washington's preseason game against the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field on Friday night. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. I've got my my three or four categories that kind of every receiver fits in one of those. And you just... For me, I'm able to quickly kind of assess and throw them in a box.
I'm a little bit more process oriented. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.